Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about theories of commerce, luxury, the 18th century. And we're going to start with Les Adventures to Telemaque by Fenelon from France. A novel that just blew the doors off people living in this century. It had such an impact on the way people in the 18th century thought about society it would be very difficult to understate its influence. And the main argument of the novel, or or so I would put it to, is that luxury is terrible. Luxury leads to corruption. It destroys virtue. uh, And that we ought to instead prefer a more egalitarian society, which dispenses with those luxuries, which lead to stratification and corruption. Right. So it's very, very much an egalitarian book, and it has a huge impact on these attempts to bring equality as a value into the discourse during the 18th century. And Fenelon, interestingly, associates luxury and corruption and decadence and imperialism with the Romans and equality uh, with the Greeks. Those Greek cities, which were so virtuous and equal and and so on. And this kind of sets up the view of ancient history, which tends to dominate this century. A view where you have good, virtuous, nice Greeks living in their small, virtuous, nice cities that are very, very devoid of luxury and excess. And then you have these horrible, awful, decadent Romans living in their giant metropolises, consuming all kinds of luxuries and behaving in all sorts of terrible ways, right? Uh, And of course, during this period, European states are getting bigger. European cities are getting bigger. There's a feeling that they're moving in the direction of Rome. uh, And this argument positions Greece as a kind of alternative. Of course, it's not really an alternative for most of these European states because Greek city-states are tiny and small. And Greek city-states would dispense, in the view of these guys, would dispense with a lot of the commerce, which has driven the growth and development of these big European powers, particularly France, a big European power, right? So this becomes the kind of anchoring thing in the century. Everybody's, everybody reads this book. Everybody has a reaction to this book. Edmund, what did you think of it? Yeah, I think... One question with Fenelon is the degree to which he's tying his critique of luxury, um, which is uh, a critique of, um, as the etymology of the word suggests, excess, from the Latin uh, luxus, excess, um, which um, could mean, uh, and is often taken to mean, excessive material consumption. Uh, but it can also be taken to mean excessive love of something like honor. It's not necessarily just uh, materialist excess. It could be a kind of social excess. 
uh, an excessive pride, for instance. Um, and so Fenelon is clearly critiquing that, and um, one of the uh, the central uh, characters in the book, uh, the mentor, um, says, quote, What a shame that men of the highest rank should place their greatness in the dainties of a luxurious table by which they enervate their minds and quickly ru ruin the health and vigour of their bodies. They ought to account it their happiness to be moderate, to have power and authority to do good, and to be honoured and esteemed for so doing. So here, uh, luxury is uh, that which is eroding uh, a more central virtue of states, which is moderation, and luxury is a uh, flight to the extremes uh, rather than an adherence to uh, the golden mean, as Aristotle would put it, between uh, excesses of luxury and poverty. And one book that is um, taking inspiration from, though uh, to some degree opposing, uh, Fenelon's argument uh, against um, luxury and excessive um, trade is Bernard Mandeville's The Fable of the Bees. I guess if we can read a lot of 18th century writings on luxury as a reaction to Fenelon, we can also read it as a reaction to Mandeville, who uh, defended trade uh, and luxury more than uh, Fenelon did. At the same time, while noting that uh, trade and luxury can help to sustain a state and that public benefits flow from the private vices of commercial competition, uh, Mandeville also noted that people are more motivated by a lack of something than by the presence of something. So poverty is a better motivator than luxury. So there is also a sense in Mandeville's Fable of the Bees, often taken to be a, a defense of trade and luxury, uh, that there is a case for um, some kind of critique of the effects of luxury on civic virtue, that luxury can erode the courage of the state, uh, not just the moderation of the state, but the courage of its citizens. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Since, since we're introducing Mandeville, I think it might be fun because the Fable of the Bees, it's not a very long poem. I think it might be fun to just read the Fable of the Bees. Yeah, yeah. Right? So here's how the Fable of the Bees goes. A spacious hive well stocked with bees that lived in luxury and ease, and yet as famed for laws and arms, as yielding large and early swarms, was counted the great nursery of sciences and industry. No bees had better government, more fickleness or less content. They were not slaves to tyranny, nor ruled by wild democracy but kings that could not wrong because their power was circumscribed by laws. These insects lived like men, and all our actions they performed in small. They did whatever's done in town and what belongs to sword or gown. Though artful works by nimble slight of minute limbs escaped human sight, yet we've no engines, laborers, ships, castles, arms, artificers. 
craft, science, shop, or instrument, but they had an equivalent, which since their language is unknown, must be called as we do our own. As grant that among other things, they lacked dice, yet they had kings, and those had guards from whence we may justly conclude they had some play, unless a regiment be shown of soldiers that make use of none. Vast numbers thronged the fruitful hive, yet those vast numbers made them thrive, millions endeavoring to supply each other's lust and vanity, while other millions were employed to see their handiworks destroyed. They furnished half the universe, yet had more work than laborers. Some with vast stocks and little pains jumped into business of great gains, and some were damned to scythes and spades, and all those hard laborious trades where willing wretches daily sweat and wear out strength and limbs to eat, while others followed mysteries, to which few folks find apprentices. They want no stock but that of brass, and may set up without a cross, as sharpers, parasites, pimps, players, pickpockets, coiners, quacks, soothsayers, and all those that in enmity, with downright working, cunningly, convert to their own use the labor of their good-natured, heedless neighbor. These were called knaves, but bar the name. The grave industrious were the same. All trades and places knew some cheat. No calling was without deceit. The lawyers of whose art the basis was raising feuds and splitting cases, opposed all registers that cheats might make more work with dipped estates, as weren't unlawful that one's own without a lawsuit should be known. They kept off hearings willfully to finger the refreshing fee and to defend a wicked cause, examined and surveyed the laws, as burglars, shops, and houses do, to find out where they'd best break through. Physicians valued fame and wealth, above the drooping patient's health, or their own skill. The greatest part studied, instead of rules of art, grave pensive looks and dull behavior, to gain the apothecary's favor, the praise of midwives, priests, and all that served at birth or funeral, to bear with the ever-talking tribe and hear my lady's aunt prescribe with formal smile and kind how do ye, to fawn on all the family, and which of all the greatest curses to endure the impertinence of nurses. Among the many priests of Jove, hired to draw blessings from above, some few were learned and eloquent, but thousands hot and ignorant, yet all past muster that could hide their sloth, lust, avarice, and pride, for which they were as famed as tailors for cabbage or for brandy sailors. Some meager looked and manly, meanly clad would mystically pray for bread, meaning by that an ample store, yet literally received no more. And while these holy drudges starved, the lazy ones for which they served indulged their ease with all the graces of health and plenty in their faces. The soldiers that were forced to fight, if they survived, got honor by it, though some that shunned the bloody fray had limbs shot off that ran away. Some valiant generals fought the foe, Others took bribes to let them go. Some ventured always where twas warm, lost now a leg and then an arm, till quite disabled and put by. They lived on half their salary, while others never came in play and stayed at home for double pay. Their kings were served but knavishly, cheated by their own ministry. Many that for their welfare slaved, robbing the very crown they saved. Pensions were small, and they lived high, yet boasted of their honesty. Calling, whence they strained their right, the slippery trick a prerequisite. And when folks understood their cant, they changed that for emolument, 
unwilling to be short or plain in anything concerning gain, for there was not a bee but would get more. I won't say then he should, but then he dared to let them know that paid for it as your gamesters do, who though at fair play ne'er will own before the losers what they've won. But who can all their frauds repeat, the very stuff which in the street they sold the dirt to enrich the ground, was often by the buyers found, sophisticated with a quarter of good-for-nothing stones and mortar, though Flail had little cause to mutter, who sold the other salt for butter. Justice herself, famed for fair dealing, by blindness had not lost her feeling, her left hand, which the scales should hold, had often dropped them bribed with gold. And though she seemed impartial, where punishment was corporeal, pretended to a regular course in murder and all crimes of force. Uh, Some, first pilloried for cheating, were hanged in hemp of their own beating. Yet it was thought the sword she bore checked, but the desperate and the poor, urged by mere necessity, were tied up to the wretched tree for crimes which not deserved that fate, but to secure the rich and great. Thus every part was full of vice, yet the whole mass of paradise, flattered in peace and feared in wars, they were the esteem of foreigners, the lavish of their wealth and lives, the balance of all other hives. Such were the blessings of that state, their crimes conspired to make them great, and virtue, who from politics had learned a thousand cunning tricks, was by their happy influence made friends with vice. And ever since, the worst of all the multitude did something for the common good. This was the statecraft that maintained the whole of which each part complained. This as in music harmony, made jarrings in the main agree. Parties directly opposite assist each other, as it were for spite, and temperance with sobriety serve drunkenness and gluttony. The root of evil, avarice, that damned ill nature, baneful vice, was slave to prodigality, that noble sin, for luxury employed a million of the poor, and Odious pride, a million more. Envy itself and vanity were ministers of industry, their darling folly, ficklessness in diet, furniture, and dress. That strange, ridiculous vice was made the very wheel that turned the trade. Their claws and clothes were equally objects of mutability. For what was well done for a time in half a year became a crime. Yet while they altered thus their law, still finding and correcting flaws, they mended by inconstancy faults, which no prudence could foresee. Thus vice nursed ingenuity, which joined with time and industry had carried life's conveniences, its real pleasures, comforts, ease to such a height. The very poor lived better than the rich before, and nothing could be added more. How vain is mortal happiness! Had they but known the bounds of bliss, and that perfection here below is more than gods can well bestow, the grumbling brutes had been content with ministers and government. But they, at every ill success, like creatures lost without redress, cursed politicians, armies, fleets, while every one cried, Damn the cheats! and would, though conscious of his own, in others barbarously bear none. 
One that had got a princely store by cheating master, king and poor, dared cry aloud, The land must sink for all its fraud. And whom do you think the sermonising rascal chid? A, glo a glover that sold lamb for kid. The least thing was not done amiss, or crossed the public business. But all the rogues cried brazenly, Good gods, had we but honesty! Mercury smiled at the impudence, and others called it a lack of sense. Always to rail at what they loved, but Jove with indignation moved. At last, in anger, swore he'd rid the bawling hive of fraud, and did. The very moment it departs, and honesty fills all their hearts. There shows them the instructive tree, those crimes which they're ashamed to see, which now in silence they confess, by blushing at their ugliness, like children that would hide their faults, and by their colour own their thoughts, imagining, when they're looked upon, that others see what they have done. But, O oh, ye gods, what consternation! How vast and sudden was the alternation! In half an hour the nation round, meat fell a penny in the pound, the mask hypocrisies flung down, from the great statesman to the clown, and some in borrowed looks well known appeared like strangers in their own. The bar was silent from that day, for now the willing debtors pay, even what's by creditors forgot, who quitted them that had it not. Those that were in the wrong stood mute and dropped the patched vexatious suit, on which since nothing less can thrive than lawyers in an honest hive, all except those that got enough, with inkhorns by their sides, trooped off. Justice hanged some, set others free, and after jail delivery, her presence being no more acquired, with all her train and pomp retired, first marched some smiths, with locks and grates, fetters and doors with iron plates, next gaulers, turnkeys and assistants, before the goddess, at some distance her chief and faithful minister. Squire Catch, the law's great finisher, bore not the imaginary sword, but his own tools, an axe and cord. Then on a cloud, the hoodwinked fair, justice herself was pushed by air about her chariot, and behind were sergeant, bums of every kind, tipstaff, and all those officers that squeeze a living out of tears. Though physic lived, while folks were ill, none would prescribe but bees of skill, which through the hive dispersed so wide, that none of them had need to ride, waved vain disputes, and strove to free the patience of their misery left drugs in cheating countries grown, and used the products of their own, knowing the gods sent no disease to nations without remedies. Their clergy roused from laziness, laid not their charge on journey bees, but served themselves exempt from vice, the gods with prayer and sacrifice. All those that were unfit, or knew their service might be spared, withdrew, nor was their business for so many, if the honest stand in need of any. Few only with the high priest stayed, to whom the rest obedience paid, himself employed in holy cares, resigned to others' state affairs, 
He chased no starveling from his door, nor pinched the wages of the poor. But as his house the hungry's fed, the hireling finds unmeasured bread, the needy traveller bored and bred. Among the king's great ministers and all the inferior officers the change was great, for frugally they now lived on their salary. That a poor bee should ten times come to ask his due a trifling sum, and by some well-hired clerk be made to give a crown, or ne'er be paid, would now be called a downright cheat, though formerly a perquisite. All places managed first by three, who watched each other's knavery, and often for a fellow feeling promote each one another's stealing, are happily supplied by one, by which some thousands more are gone. No honour now could be content to live and owe for what was spent. Liveries and brokers' shops are hung. They part with coaches for a song, sell stately horses, buy hall sets and country houses to pay debts. Vain cost is shunned as much as fraud. They have no forces kept abroad, laugh at the esteem of foreigners and empty glory got by wars. They fight but for their country's sake, when right or liberty's at stake. Now mind the glorious hive, and see how honesty and trade agree. The show is gone, it thins apace, and looks with quite another face, for t'was not only that they went, by whom vast sums were yearly spent, but multitudes that lived on them were daily forced to do the same. In vain to other trades they'd fly, all were o'erstocked accordingly. The price of land and houses falls, miraculous palaces whose walls are like those of Thebes, were raised by play, are to be let, while the once gay, well-seated household gods would be more pleased to expire in flames than see the mean inscription on the door smile at the lofty ones they bore. The building trade is quite destroyed. Artificers are not employed. No limner for his art is famed. Stonecutters, carvers are not named. Those that remained, grown temperate, strive not how to spend, but how to live. And when they paid their tavern score, resolved to enter it no more. No vintner's jilt in all the hive could now wear cloth of gold and thrive, nor torkle such vast remains advance. For Burgundy and Ortolans the court is gone, that with his miss supped at his house on Christmas peas, spending as much in two hours' stay as keeps a troop of horse a day. The haughty Chloe, to live great, had made her husband rob the state. But now she sells her furniture, which the Indies had been ransacked for, contracts the expensive bill of fare and wears her strong suit a whole year. The slight and fickle age is past, and clothes as well as fashions last. Weavers that join rich silk with plate, and all the trades that subordinate are gone. Still peace and plenty reign, and everything is cheap though plain. Kind nature, free from gardener's force, allows all fruits in her own course. But rarities can be had, where pains to get them are not paid. As pride and luxury decrease, so by degrees they leave the seas, not merchants now, but companies remove all manufactories. All arts and crafts neglected lie, content, the bane of industry, makes them admire their homely store, and neither seek nor covet more. So few in the vast hive remain, the hundredth part they can't maintain. Against the insults of numerous foes, whom yet they valiantly opposed till some well-fenced retreat is found, and here they die 
or stand their ground. No hireling in their armies known, but bravely fighting for their own, their courage and integrity. At last were crowned with victory. They triumphed not without their cost, for many thousand bees were lost. Hardened with toils and exercise, they counted ease itself a vice, which so improved their temperance that to avoid extravagance, they flew into a hollow tree, blessed with content and honesty. Then leave complaints. Fools only strive to make a great and honest hive to enjoy the world's conveniences. Be famed in war, yet live in ease. Without great vices is a vain utopia seated in the brain. Fraud, luxury, and pride must live while we the benefits receive. Hunger's a dreadful plague, no doubt, yet who digests or thrives without? Do we not owe the growth of wine to the dry, shabby, crooked vine, which while its shoots neglected stood, choked other plants and ran to wood, but blessed us with its noble fruit as soon as it was tied and cut? So vice is beneficial found when it's by justice loped and bound. Nay, where the people would be great, as necessary to the state, as hunger is to make them eat. Bare virtue can't make nations live in splendor. They that would revive a golden age must be as free for acorns as for honesty. Edmund mm. read that much better than I did, I have to say. Oh, no. somebody, <laughs> somebody sure. should hire Edmund to stage act. <laughs> well, yeah. it would be so very it, Mandavidian of me. <laughs> yeah. Because Mandeville's point is, to some degree, about hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for people out there who found that a little difficult to follow, because of course it is old, old-fashioned language. The main idea here is you got these bees. The bees are living very luxurious lives. They are terrible bees. They are completely lacking in virtue, right? Uh, and then Jove, a god, intervenes to make them honest and good bees. And when they become honest and good, they lose their competitive drives. They lose their willingness to cheat and steal and do whatever is necessary to get ahead. And so because of this, the hive economically collapses and becomes subject to foreign invasion and decays. And the few remaining bees are forced to run away and go live in an old stop. Right? That's the very quick, short version of that. I hope that mm. people who enjoyed the long version enjoyed it. If you had a hard time with the long version, that's the quick and short version of this. Mm. Right? So this is the kind of thing that keeps coming up in this period. There's this tension between, on the one hand, what virtue requires, and on the other hand, what seems to be necessary to be competitive. Right. As a state, yeah. as a society. Right. So if you think ba back to that Greeks versus Romans thing, if you're an admirer of those Greek city states, you have to grapple with the fact that those Greek city states were subjugated by Macedonia and by the Romans. Right. They weren't competitive with the big states. Mm. And so what Mandeville is kind of pointing out here is that if you don't have these negative qualities, then you're not going to be able to have a society that is great and in the sense of powerful and competitive and so on. And therefore being survival and, and competitiveness and power are at odds with the virtues, right? Now, this is a debate that it's not the first time we've talked about this. 
if you go to Machiavelli and you look at a lot of the uh, theorists of raison d'etat in centuries prior to this, you know, a lot of them are arguing about whether virtue and reason of state go together, whether the state's interests and the way the state needs to behave align with virtue or whether there's a gap between these things. And Machiavelli is the theorist who introduces this idea that really politics and morality are two entirely separate normative domains that don't coincide, often conflict, right? That's a debate that is still kind of going on here, but now it's being framed very much in terms of economic stuff, as opposed to, say, military policy, right? It's being more pitched in terms of what should our attitude be to trade to luxury, to commerce. And it's worth pointing out here that for theorists in this period, luxury and commerce are kind of different things, right? So luxury is associated with excess and extremity and with kind of the, un, you know, in Plato's language, unnecessary desires, stuff that you don't have to have, right? But if you take Mandeville seriously, then if you want to have your society survive at, at scale, you do kind of have to have these things. Hmm. So there's a question here about whether the luxuries are, are necessary and that you know, the use of the word luxury implies that they're not. But Mandeville is saying, well, if you want to have a great society, maybe they are. At the other side, you have just commerce in general. And of course, if you go all the way back to Plato, in the first city, there's commerce. There is exchange. Uh, but there isn't luxury, right? You have traders, you have people who, who exchange stuff, even in Plato's first city before luxury is introduced. And you'll find in this century, the physiocrats, a group of kind of French proto-economists, they make the argument that trade is completely fine, but that you should be trying to be an agricultural exporter, that you should trade agricultural products because agriculture is actually to do with sustaining life and is therefore necessary, right? But industrial behavior is you know, parasitic because it's only really about making luxury items that you don't really need. And so the physiocrats argue that if France is exporting agricultural products, uh, the states that are importing agricultural products are dependent on France for life. Whereas if the French are importing manufactured goods from Britain, uh, you know, those, those manufactured goods are not, not necessary and therefore could be more easily done away with. Uh, and so the suggestion is that if you're making a bunch of manufactured goods, that that's kind of parasitic on the real source of wealth, which is agriculture, because mm. agriculture is real wealth because it's actually connected to sustaining life, yeah. right? Uh, that's the kind of argument that the physiocrats make. And you can see how this is a kind of attempt to have commerce while also in some way making concessions to these arguments about luxury and corruption. Right? Mm. Yeah. It's all very tricky. And, and the issue here is that we, we for uh, most of the history of political thought up to this point, this idea of virtue has been very dominant. And beginning with Machiavelli, virtue starts to be a little bit besieged. People start arguing that what's actually in the interests of um, states or of economies doesn't coincide with traditional conceptions of virtue. And this is a huge problem for these theorists because without virtue, then what? We're, we're just going to be terrible people who treat each other horribly? That's not okay. 
And so mm-hmm. there's this, this quest to find a way to reconcile these things, right? Mm-hmm. So you have someone like Mandeville who makes this very egoist argument, argues that more or less most of what we do is entirely self-motivated, entirely mm-hmm. egoistic, yeah. right? And this is something that Mandeville, who is a provocateur and loves to upset people, Mandeville enjoys taking these kinds of positions. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Mandeville, by the way, is Dutch. He just enjoys upsetting people very clearly. Uh, but a lot of other theorists are very bothered by these arguments, right? You know, it's like somebody's trolling you and having fun, but you're going, wait a minute. You know, I, what about morality? What about what's good and what's bad? Mm. And what's going to happen to all this stuff? Yeah. And so you have some people like Fenelon reacting to this and going, we should try to go back to something that's, that's not like this. We should take inspiration from the Greeks. And, you see a lot of artists in this period getting all into neoclassical art forms and trying to revive the Greek tradition. And it's important to note that these people are very heavily focused on reviving the Greeks. And insofar as they are interested in the Romans, it's the Roman Republic that they'll take an interest in. But they're very, very opposed in this century to the Roman Empire, which they kind of write off as a horribly corrupt decadent, deformed set of institutions, right? Uh, never mind, of course, that the Roman Empire lasted much longer than the Roman Republic or any of those Greek city-states. Uh, the frame in this period is that the empire is the result of deformation of the institutions and therefore is kind of, it's just kind of written off as, as corrupt and bad and not very worthy of being uh, looked at too closely. Mm. Uh, by most figures of the period. And the, the exception, of course, is Gibbon, who writes The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But even for Gibbon, there's a lot of emphasis placed on corruption in his narrative of what happens to Rome. And part of the reason for this is that so many Roman authors themselves make these kinds of decadence and decadence and corruption arguments to explain their own situation. The thing is, these Roman authors claim that Rome is decadent very early in its history. They claim Rome's decadent while Augustus is ruling. Uh, so the Romans are always talking about this, uh, almost at every stage. At every point in their history, they're not as good as the heroic Romans of the past who were better and more virtuous. Were the Romans ever better or more virtuous? Probably not. Hmm. But this is the kind of narrative that's popular, and it's the narrative that takes hold in this period. And so there's this, this constant focus on, well, what if we could get back to something that's smaller, and therefore easier to uh, coherently mold into a virtuous society. And so, of course, you'll get Rousseau a little bit later in this period, who argues, coming from Geneva, a city-state, for a radically egalitarian kind of small city-state model. And we talked about Rousseau back on the Rousseau episode. Mm. If you'll notice, the people who are making these pushes to really return to virtue, they're also pushing to return to small states. To city states, little stuff, right? The theorists who are pushing back against that think that you need a bigger state, that a small state is not competitive, can't last. So if you think back to Machiavelli, for Machiavelli, it was so important to unify Italy, right? Because if you don't unify Italy, then France can invade it and ruin it over and over and over again, right? So for Machiavelli, you need a big state, which means you have to deal with the consequences of managing a larger state. And there's a chapter in the Discursi where Machiavelli talks about 
could Rome have been constructed in such a way that it wouldn't have the conflict between the Senate and the people? And he argues that the only way that Rome could have been constructed so as to avoid that conflict would have been to make it in such a way that it would be similar to, say, Sparta or Venice. And therefore, it would have had to have stayed small. And if it had stayed small, it couldn't have been great. It couldn't have unified all of this stuff. and, And that would have been the cost, right? So in Machiavelli, you have this idea that you have a choice between a great, powerful, long-lasting state that can be very big and can take lots of people into it Mm. and becomes very luxurious and very decadent and so on, or a small state which can only last as long as the international environment and its neighborhood is favorable to it. Mm. And which, as soon as it comes into contact with a big state, is liable to be subjugated. Yeah, I guess in those two circumstances, you've got, on the one hand, a big state that's formed through conquest, or or perhaps a small state, um, less Sparta, um, more Venice, um, that is based on, uh, in Venice's case, trade. And, of course, the one uh, Greek city-state that is sometimes cited as something which um, anticipates modernity is Athens, um, which, um, while based on war, uh, did have considerably uh, greater trade links than our usual because it was an empire built on water. And so uh, ships which could be uh, sailing across the water um, for warfare um, could also... um, be used, and you know, those waterways could be used for trade too. Um, of course, not as much as the modern age. Um, and uh, indeed, Rome itself um, and the struggle between Rome and Carthage can be traced back to the Phoenicians and the trading states of the late Iron Age Mediterranean. And so, trade has always played a role. But yeah, it's generally been that it's the large states that are able to form through warfare and um, smaller states that tend to be based on on trade. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And the smaller states in this period, they do have significant navies. It's not as if Venice doesn't have a big, powerful navy protecting its trade ships. Uh, but the important thing is that Venice's navy, such as it is, would not be competitive with a huge state's navy in the long run. Yeah, yeah, Venice yeah. is able to be competitive because it exists at the kind of periphery of the big states. Right. There isn't another state in that part of the Mediterranean that is large enough to be able to overcome Venice. Yeah. Yeah. And one point that Isvan Hunt makes in his survey of 18th century uh, writers on commerce in his book, Jealousy of Trade, uh, Hunt makes the argument that uh, while um, pre modern political economy is in some senses based, um, as you just suggested, Benjamin, on a choice between a big state founded on warfare and a small state founded on trade. Whereas uh, the kind of solution that the moderns stumble across is a combination of the two, uh, an entanglement of the logics of war and trade into a, a single logic um, of um, commerce and conquest, trade and war at the same time where trade becomes warlike 
and uh, war in turn is shaped by trade, which makes possible uh, not just small states and big states, but medium-sized states, um, which leads up um, in the end to the formation of the modern nation-state, which is uh, bigger than the trading city-states um, of, uh, say, Venice um, and other cases of small trading city-states, um, but also smaller than the empires of antiquity. And in a sense, the um, political economic form that early modern, modern Europe uh, starts to stumble across uh, from the 18th century onwards is this political form that stands between city-states and empires, um, a nation-state that is, um, of course, only really in germination in the 18th century and really only reaches fruition one could argue, in the late 19th century, and in some cases only after uh, decolonization um, in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, but these new modern states stand between the small states and the big states of old, stand between um, the smallness of trading states and the largeness of um, warring states, and in a sense, combine these two logics of war and trade, where war leads to uh, centralization and trade leads to specialization. Uh, but when these logics are combined, you can have a political form which itself um, combines the merits of large and small states, but also, of course, the drawbacks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think there are really two senses in which these these nation states are smaller than empires. Of course, one is the obvious territorial sense. Italy is bigger than Venice, but smaller than the Roman Empire. France is bigger than Paris, but smaller than the Roman Empire. Uh, and you could go on and on with this. The other sense in which they're smaller is that even if one of these nation states acquires overseas territory, right? Like say the British Empire acquires a lot of Britain, we call it an empire, right? It acquires all this overseas territory. Yeah. But because these states are nation states, they can't relate to the territory they acquire in the same way that a traditional old-fashioned empire would, right? right? So the, the obvious example of a traditional old-fashioned empire that didn't really transition to being a nation state is the Habsburg Empire, right? The Habsburg Empire, of course, uh, at its peak under Charles V, contained many, many different countries in it, what, what we would now call countries. Spain, parts of Italy, parts of Germany, the Netherlands, um, Austria. Lots, I, if I read you the whole list, it would take a little while, mm. right? Even after the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs go their own way, the Austrian Habsburgs are running a state which includes Austrians, Hungarians, Slovenians, Croats, Bosnians, Herzegovinians, uh, Serbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Romanians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The way this works is that in an empire, the connection be is between the subject and the political institution, right? So you're a subject of the Holy, of the Holy Roman Emperor or the Habsburg Emperor, right? Or the the 
uh, king of Austria or Hungary, right? And there are kind of mediating levels of, of feudal lords in between, but it's a traditional system where you are connected to the monarch through the mediating, inst mediating institutions of churches and nobility, right? And there isn't a language even uh, or an ethnicity which is common to all. Right. Now, if you were working in the bureaucracy of the thing, you would probably learn the language, which is the lingua, lingua franca of the empire. Right. You would learn German. You would learn Latin. Uh, but ordinary people would not all speak the same language. What they share in common is a, is a political status, a set of relationships to a state institution. Right. And specifically to a state institution headed by a dynasty. So it's loyalty to a dynasty of monarchs, right? In these newfangled nation states, instead of pitching it all up through the ruling dynasty, it's pitched in terms of commitment to a national idea or an ethno. In most cases in Europe, it's an ethno state, right? So it's not that you're committed to the Bourbons, you're committed to France. So in the French Revolution, they can accuse Louis of having committed treason against France. Now, of course, for Louis, this doesn't make any sense. Louis is France, right? In the old way of thinking, the dynasty is the state, mm. right? As Louis XIV says, l'état c'est moi, I am the state, mm. right? But now, instead of, hey, you are all united by the fact that you are subjects of one of this state or citizens of this state, the thing that is unifying is that you have a kind of French culture, that you are, you speak French, you are thickly French in various ways, right? And what it means to be thickly French is contestable and contested, but everyone claims that there is some kind of thick, distinctive thing that it means to be French, right? So if you are living in a state that is unified around Frenchness rather than around the Bourbons, that means that if you acquire territory in Africa or India or the Americas, those people, because they are not French in all of the thick cultural ways, they don't speak French, they don't uh, act French, it is hard to treat them as part of France in the same way that you would treat someone in France who speaks French, who is culturally French, as part of France, right? That was not a problem for people in the Habsburg Empire because you don't have to speak any particular language or have any particular cultural characteristics to acknowledge the Habsburg emperor as the Habsburg emperor, right? And in the same way in the Roman Empire, you don't have to have a lot of shared cultural content to acknowledge the Roman emperor as the Roman emperor. And that means you can have different language, different culture. In the case of the Roman Empire through much of its earlier history, completely different religious beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the kind of thing that is changing here. Uh, in terms of smallness and largeness. It's not just that you have a state that's medium-sized in terms of territory. You also have a state that is only capable of fully integrating a medium-sized array of diversity, right? In a city-state, you have to be part of the city. And oftentimes, you have to be a citizen of the city, and citizenship of the city is contingent on meeting lots of bespoke requirements, right? Mm. But in a nation-state, you have citizenship more de, de, de facto, uh, and de jure, 
just from being part of the ethnicity and the shared culture, right? Yeah. So it's it's wider than city-state citizenship, but it's more delimited than the kind of citizenship that would prevail in a big old traditional empire like Rome, right? Yeah. So it's not just that it's medium-sized in its territory. It's also medium-sized in its potential to integrate different kinds of people Yeah. Yeah. into the state, right? Uh, and yeah. so this becomes a limiting factor on these states for their growth. Uh, they're not yeah. able to fully integrate the peoples that they are conquering in the way that the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire would would do would have done centuries before. I guess it's three things: it's territories, medium sized; it's um, it's um, legitimation stories, as you point out, that the way it tries to make its authority acceptable to citizens. That's uh, medium sized, um, somewhere between. Um, citizenship of an empire uh, like Rome and um, citizenship of a of a particular city state. Uh, and of course, one way in which this is done is by uh, substituting uh, state based uh, legitimacy with more group based legitimacy, as you were pointing out through the concept of um, nations and ethnicity. Um, while for Aristotle, it is evident that the state is a creation of nature and that man is by nature a political animal. By contrast, uh, for Adam Ferguson, uh, writing in the 18th century, quote, mankind are, be, are to be taken in groups as they have always subsisted. So while uh, Ferguson's uh, basic social units are uh, societies and nations, uh, the units um, of the Greeks and the Romans were states and empires. And uh, in a sense, uh, I suppose that nationalism is one way of trying to resisting the pull of too much uh, local uh, decentralization or too much focus on the particular city, particular local community, and also too much um, transnational integration. It resists both the breakup of nation states and the integration of nation states into larger polities. As well as the legitimation stories um, and the territory being medium-sized, it's also the institutions that are medium-sized. Um, um, while it's, um, in a sense, still quite uh, fashionable to frame the choice of institutions for states as being between, um, I guess to, today people would say democracies on the one hand and authoritarian regimes on the other, where a democracy is totally open to multiple different inputs and an authoritarian regime is uh, totally closed off. Uh, there is something else here, um, which is the level of state centralization which is going on. Um, and that is something that... Um, one could argue is something that is also balanced in this time period, somewhere between a um, a state that is uh, fully unified and a state that is at war with itself or multiple small states. It's, it, well, that's I, the I, other thing. I kind of want to. I want to maybe resist an element of that because the nation state is, in many ways, because it is more unified. Uh, than an empire, it can also be more 
authoritarian than an empire, even when it's a democracy. Yeah, yeah, I do agree with that. Yeah. Right. Because an empire, because it is trying to integrate such a diverse spread of people, an old traditional empire has to be very light touch. It can't heavily intervene in the cultural practices of the peoples it's integrating because it is genuinely integrating those people as subjects. And if it starts to pick sides very heavily, it will get rebellions. And because it has so many people who are so different, it can very quickly get out of hand if it tries to play things too heavy handed. The nation state, because it integrates uh, a narrower set of people, it can be very, very heavy handed in the way that it socializes its population. Yes, yes. Relative to a traditional empire. And I mean, yeah, that's yeah. why totalitarianism comes out of the nation state. Right, right. Y yeah. Rather than from empires. And I think a lot of people nowadays, when they look back at those empires, they don't really see the difference between old fashioned empires and uh, totalitarian nation states. They just go, well, authoritarianism is authoritarianism. Yes. Well, it depends which, which empire, of course, you look at. Because the Roman Empire is, in a sense, unusual in its level of um, balance. Well, or it's, in a sense, typical. Because I'd say the Roman Empire is, is distinctively very much that way. But I would say relative to nation states, most of those traditional empires are much more like that. The yeah. Persian Empire is much more like that. Uh, the Chinese Empire is much more like uh, that. Uh, but in, if you've noticed, uh, this attempt in China to, say, discipline people into a singular language and to say uh, what's been going on with the Uyghurs in China, this effort to make China more culturally homogenous, which goes back to the Cultural Revolution and the Maoist period and so on, this all comes during the period in which China thinks of itself more like a nation state. Oh, yes, yeah. because oh, yes, When oh, China thought of itself as an empire, it was much less fussed about all of that. Right, right. Uh, of course, yeah, of course, in, the, in terms of legitimacy and uh, ideology, that, that's, of course, very much modern. Um, I think one thing which we can note is, is the role of political centralization in history. There have been centralized states before modernity. And an example would be the uh, warring state period of ancient China, um, where political scientist Francis Fukuyama argues that we saw the first modern state, in, in inverted commas, um, where the modern state is defined essentially by uh, a degree of um, bureaucratization, having a civil service, and a centralization of um, administration and military force. And that is what you get in, to some degree in the state of Qin after Shangyang's bureaucratic reforms of 356 BCE. And the state of Qin then tries to impose this on the rest of China um, from uh, the formation of the uh, Qin Empire um, in um, 221 BCE. Um, but the empire is... Uh, in a sense, too uh, heavy-handed, and it collapses relatively quickly after a, a rebellion um, led by um, people who the, the the state was trying to execute, um, and so, and of course, replaced by the 
Han Dynasty, which found a synthesis of sorts between um, the legalism um, of the Qin state and the Confucian traditions uh, which the state was inheriting. And so try to find a balance between um, the need for unity on the one hand and the need to maintain the uh, diversity of the empire. And so found a synthesis arguably quite similar to the um, Roman principate. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And I think that Yes, when you get periods of these kind of medium-sized states, I think they end up looking a lot more like nation-states than we might imagine, even if they're occurring a very long time ago in contexts that are very different. Medium-sized states tend to give rise to this way of thinking about the state. That, that size, that scale, uh, uh, tends to give rise to that kind of thinking. I think that You'll find cases where that doesn't obtain, say, in Western Europe during the Middle Ages, where you have some medium-sized states, but those states are very internally divided because of the state-church relationships and the particular feudal way in which those states are constructed. Yes. But you can find much more centralized medium-sized states in China during the Warring States period. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so this, this kind of gets it. The issue, uh, very often people who are running a city state or they're running a, a nation state, they try to have an empire in the traditional sense. They try to accumulate a bunch of territory that includes people who are very different. And because they are not running an empire, they can't make that transition. I think the, uh, the European states really could not transition to being old fashioned empires because to do that would violate the legitimation criteria that they had with respect to their citizens at home. So it was not possible for the British to treat, say, Indians like they were British, or for the French to treat Algerians like they were French, despite some intellectuals and some politicians trying to do precisely this and to make that kind of state. It was not possible because the narrative of what the state is, is based on too much thick cultural agreement. Yeah, yeah. And once you have that level of thickness, it, it becomes very difficult to thin it back down again without some kind of event which shatters the state into small pieces. Yeah. Uh, and so we've moved a little bit away from, from commerce and, and luxury. We've, we've kind of moved into net, uh, nations and empires. Yeah. A bit. Uh, I guess partly because, to, to, yeah, because that's based on the logic of war. And what we get in the 18th century is the confluence of the logics of trade and warfare, where war leads to this big centralization of the state. But trade makes possible the balancing of this centralization um, with uh, not just the competitive pressure of um, warfare between states, but the competitive pressure of trade across and within states. And trade, in a sense, is one of the things that keeps nation states from forming um, bigger unities because trade tends to favor the city-state form. Um, and so the fact that you've got war and trade at the same time meant that you can get this uh, territorial and uh, ideological balance of sorts. And I would say also an institutional balance because though you've got centralization as a result of warfare, you do have the other two pillars of what Fukuyama regards as the modern state evolving, which are rule of law and accountability. Now, accountability takes a while to evolve, uh, 
And it's really not until the 19th century that we see democracies emerging out of the class forces that uh, modern trade unleashes. Um, and really only in the 20th century does this come to uh, some level of maturation. Uh, but we yeah, also it takes see- people a while to figure all this out yeah. because initially this is a, a new form of state, but people don't fully recognize that they have a different kind of state. Yeah. So they try to do things that they might have done with previous types of states like build empires. But really the logic of this is you just need to be large enough that you're able to pull your weight in trade negotiations. Yes, yes. If you, if you are... And so the, the difficulty is that these states tend to get into a bit of an arms race so that they can have influence over trade. And they aren't capable of actually conquering territory and getting bigger by doing that. Mm. So they have to be hyper competitive in other ways. Yes. Uh, and it pushes them into trying to be competitive economically and, and through trade yes. because they eventually realize it takes them quite a while to realize this, that they can't plant flags in countries and have that work and maintain this national, thick national identity. Yeah. And so therefore, the only way that they can square this is to somehow manage to determine what happens in other parts of the world without having to plant flags there. And the only way they can do that is by dominating trade. And the only way they can dominate trade is by economically outcompeting rival states. Yeah. And that's both through making sure that you've got a very effective state um, that is able to uh, lay down the rules of trade. Um, so a state with a lot of centralization and perhaps a high degree of centralization, but also a state with a, I would say, with a balanced constitution. And perhaps that was the point I was trying to get out earlier with institutions being balanced as well as um, territory and ideology, because you need some degree of balance between um, the different pillars of state authority at least it does seem to have helped um, that there was some kind of mixed constitution evolving in Britain uh, after the glorious revolution of 1688, because that ensured that uh, there was what uh, economic historians Asimogh and Robinson regard as the, the uh, shackles on the the Leviathan or the state of Britain. And it's these shackles which make possible the opening of economic rules, inclusive political institutions make possible inclusive economic institutions. And so uh, a kind of political openness makes possible an economic openness, um, which in turn fuels more political openness in this liberal story. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how there's this, there's this fascinating fixation with pluralism in nation states. And it stems in part from the fact that the nation state form is not very pluralist. It's a much thicker kind of unity than the unity of empires, which is by default more pluralist. Well, yeah. And so the nation states are desperate to avoid becoming too homogenous because if they become too homogenous, they won't be able to accommodate the level of difference that is necessary to continue to be dynamic and adaptable. That's the They'll thing, end yeah. up too much like city-states. Yeah. And so I think the tendency is for, for nation-states to drift toward acting like city-states, even though they aren't city-states. Right. And that's not sustainable for them. Right. 
So this constant emphasis on pluralism is kind of an attempt to get the nation state to integrate some of the lessons of those big empires. But because the nation state is predicated on a unity, which is somewhat unrealistic for its size, the nation state is always being drawn toward an over-demanding, over-totalitarian, over-despotic unity, which at the level of the city-state would not be such a big deal. If you have that kind of unity at the level of the city-state, well, you can just engage in city-state politics if you're unhappy with it Mm. and get whoever it is who's making these rules that you don't like hauled off, exiled, killed. There's a lot of of ways of contesting a city-state government that's doing things that you don't like. But you can't easily do that in a nation state because of its size and because of the power of the state. It's much harder for the individual or minorities or, or groups of people to contest what's going on in the nation state. So once it start, once that train starts to run away from the station, it can become very difficult to reel it back in. And so there's this constant emphasis on maintaining some level of pluralism, maintaining some level of dynamic adaptability yes. in a lot of the literature. And I guess that's... This goes back to how logics of trade and war, though they're combined, are pulling in different directions. And so the balance which uh, the uh, 18th century states stumble upon is uh, turns something that turns out to be perhaps less a balance than an alternation between uh, the tendencies of trade um, towards more political division, the tendency of war towards more political centralization, uh, which maps on to this ideological alternation between liberalism, the story of trade, and nationalism, the story of modern warfare. Of course, liberalism and nationalism are only made possible by the the combination of Trade and war in the long run, but once you get and therefore this, by the combination of liberalism and nationalism. Yeah, right. But once you get this combination in place, then you can have a, a little alternation, uh, a competition between these two logics, which um, can be, in, in a sense, quite fruitful because it ensures that you never stay with uh, one precise configuration of power, and that when there's a contradiction, that that tension can be flushed out by just alternating to another form of commercial society, opening um, and closing of the commercial state. So on the one hand, you have the liberal open commercial state, and on the other hand, the nationalist closed commercial state, as uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte put it at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, where he argued that a closed commercial state, where there was um, a focus on internal rather than external trade, um, would ensure that states, uh, in Fischer's view, could act peacefully with one another. But of course, in practice, when we see states um, doing this strategy of isolating themselves from from commerce, it may well be because they are preparing for warfare. And we can see a um, somewhat Fichtean strategy being employed um, by the Nazi state in the 1930s, practicing autarky um, in preparation for warfare. And so while Fichte did not think that a closed commercial state uh, should be a recipe for warfare, indeed, he thought that a closed commercial state was the recipe for peace. In practice, 
when states isolate themselves from world commerce, that does often have some kind of warlike flavor. Um, it might not, not necessarily be an interstate war, and there are arguments on the left, um, such as by Wolfgang Strake, that nation states should try to resist international trade, not in preparation for some war among nation states, but in order to wage a class war um, against uh, capital uh, and uh, against the market system writ large, something which uh, these left nation statists think is possible uh, internally, but not at a at a global level. Uh, but of course, that raises the question: Well, even if this can succeed, which would be quite difficult in a global economy, uh, how can that be made uh, to be effective? Uh, and if it's just one state going it alone, uh, might that not exacerbate competition among nation states rather than quelling it? Uh, and so there are a lot of difficult questions that the combination of uh, international trade and war fought by nation states raises. And even when war isn't actually happening, we see the legacies quite clearly in the contradiction between, as Danny Roderick argues, a globalized economy and nation states. If you've got national politics and global economics, then there are only so many ways that you can resolve crises when they come. And the resolutions tend to be hard swallows, but they tend to be uh, swallows that sometimes uh, have to be made in order to make the system continue uh, and to avoid the disintegration of world trade and the return to uh, war among nation states. So then the question, of course, is what becomes of virtue? Because when we started this off, it was, hey, wait a minute, what's happening to virtue? Yeah. Where's virtue going? How can we have virtue yeah. and have states that are like this, Yeah. right? That's where we opened. Yes. And so oftentimes people go, well, the French Revolution is about equality, right? So the French Revolution is about you know, finally fulfilling the promise of misadventures to Telemach. Not really, because in the French Revolution... While this principle of equality is appropriated, it is appropriated not in the service of returning to some kind of small state, mm. not in the service of returning to some kind of Greco-Roman thing, despite all of this language of republicanism, but ultimately in the service of building this very distinctive kind of medium-sized nation state. Yeah, a state that engages in well, warfare, which Fenelon really wanted to avoid. Mm, a lot of warfare. Yeah. A whole lot of warfare, yeah. right? So what, what happens to morality? Now, we've been talking about this a little bit off and on for the last several weeks. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this in reference to Adam Smith, Adam Smith's attempt to reconfigure virtue to make it compatible. Yes, in the shadow of Machiavelli. Right, in the shadow of Machiavelli. Right. So where Machiavelli goes, OK, well, politics and morality are, are kind of separate logics, separate normative ways of going about doing things. Uh, Smith tries to say that, hey, yeah, and morality can therefore be found in private spaces. Right. And he configures virtue. Uh, you know, we've talked about Smith's moral theory before. You can go to that episode if you want to talk more about it. But the, the main thing is that 
now morality is something that you do privately. It's not something that is the state's job to instill or the state's job to create, right? So we're now suggesting, as we start to move from Smith, this idea that individuals come into politics with values already formed, with ideas about right and wrong already formed, which they've privately formed through their own contemplation, association, education, all of these things that they do to self-develop, right, independently of the state. And so they're coming into politics with these values, with these beliefs, with these convictions. And the state is then in the position of kind of reacting to that, right? Mm. So if you go all the way forward to, say, Reinhard Kasselak, when he describes a crisis in the state, it's that there's a moral dualism between the people and the state, mm. right? That the values of the people are out of alignment with the values of the state. Morality versus right? politics, in a way. Right, morality versus politics. Yeah. And, and so this is the kind of narrative that becomes dominant, that now values and culture, this is something which occurs in a kind of civil society and a kind of private set of discursive spaces. There's a kind of discourse which is going on outside the state, and the state is reacting to that in some way, but is no longer assigned the role of bus driver, is, is no longer in the, in the role of shaping everybody and, and constructing that discourse, right? For Plato, you have to throw the poets out of the city. The city has to throw them out because they're a problem and the city needs people to have the right kinds of virtues. So there has to be a specific type of education and a specific kind of social structure to ensure that virtuous behavior obtains, right? and that people develop in the right kind of way to be suited for their roles. Here, this is all left to the private individual to work out through engagement with civil society orgs, right? And this is this increasing dependence, as we talked about in the Hegel episode, of the modern state on a kind of civil society, on some kind of set of informal private organizations, which the state does not have to overtly encourage, which the state doesn't have to build, which people build of their own accord and which does the socializing work for the state with the state, not really having to get too involved in all that. Right now, part of the appeal of this is that it keeps things pluralistic. It stops the state from getting really heavy handed, which the state, a nation state otherwise kind of wants to do because it wants some level of uniformity and homogeneity in the culture. Right. And this leads these states to go on these cultural struggles, these culture comps, where the states try to get in, in control of their education systems, try to get in control of their socialization systems and start making inroads into how people are shaped, right? And the reaction is, oh my God, that's totalitarian when that is done, right? That's the state kind of trying to play the role which it was presumed by pretty much everybody to be responsible for playing in antiquity, right? That role of shaping people and preparing them for roles, and the state starts to do that in part because when it doesn't do that, then these civil society orgs and the, this individual socialization often runs in all sorts of different directions, often in directions which conflict with the state and the state's own legitimation narratives, right? And you see this complaint all the time in the United States with the whole argument about you know, the, the uh, whether whether how children should learn about the history of racism and slavery in the United States, right? Where on the one hand, you have people arguing that they should be you know, taught that the country is really not a great country and it's done all sorts of horrible things. And other people going, wait a minute, that's going to prepare people to oppose the government and to oppose the state. And that's going to corrode the unity around the Constitution, which is the central thing which keeps people together and keeps the country together. 
And so on the one hand, you have a right, you know, the, the nationalists saying we have to make sure that the history of the country is taught in such a way that we get the level of unity that's necessary for the state to stay together. And on the other side, individuals and civil society orgs and so on going, let's, let's have narratives that are very, very different and potentially uh, challenge the legitimacy of the state. And so the nation state wants to be pluralistic, but it doesn't want to be too pluralistic because if it becomes too pluralistic, then its narrative collapses. And so this constant tension is always there. And so when we start talking about morality, and we're going to do some more uh, moral philosophy next week, we're going to talk about the utilitarians and the way the utilitarians try to respond to this. Okay. Because we did a bit of, we did Kant and uh, we did a bit of Smith. We're going to do Bentham and Mill next week. And we're going to talk about how the utilitarians try to square this, this mess. But you can see how it really is a mess because the nation state has predicated itself on a level of unity that if it ever tries to fully fulfill, will turn it into a totalitarian hellhole, Right. And yet, if it doesn't make any effort to fulfill that unity, it breaks apart. And we went over this a little bit in the episode on the Germans, but the same kind of problem rears its head for everybody trying to do this modern state project. And so you got to try to come up with some kind of solution. And the Smith solution is similar to the Hegel solution and to the Detectville solution. I don't think we've done a Detectville episode yet, but maybe at some point we will, where you've got these mediating civil society institutions that are not part of the state, but which are supposed to do the work of making people good enough that you don't have to worry too much about everything becoming rampantly corrupt, right? And it's a kind of hedge and a kind of fudge, and it never satisfies anybody, right? And the thing about this is the people who defend this kind of fudge their argument is, well, it's not like it's perfect, but it works well enough. You can muddle through stuff with this. You can get by. Yeah, sometimes it'll be a little too nationalist and sometimes it'll be a little too liberal. But you have the other force there to be a corrective. And you'll have a pendulum that's swinging back and forth and it will never sit where the ideal central sitting point would be. It will never find the golden mean, but it will swing between mistakes and correct itself when it swings too far. And therefore, the state will manage to stick together and go on. It won't be wonderful or great or transcendental. It won't give you wonderfully virtuous people. It won't give you uh, fully homogenous society. It won't give you anything that you want it to give you because it will always swing back the other way right before you think you're about to get what you want from it. Yeah. Yeah. So next week, we'll talk about uh, the utilitarians and how they try to square it. We're also going to do a Q&A episode. We do these patron Q&A episodes. That's right. You can follow us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash political theory 101, all lowercase, no space, political theory 101, not 1101. I don't know why I studied. Right. Uh, if you go there and if you subscribe to the podcast, uh, you can submit questions for that episode and you can get access to that patron Q&A episode. That one we make special uh, a couple of times a year for the people who are so kind as to support the show. But we're going to do that alongside 
an episode on utilitarianism. And both of that, those will probably be done in about uh, two weeks' time. So uh, if, uh, well, two weeks' time from when I'm recording, not two weeks' time from when you're hearing it. I'm recording on December 5th. So we are probably going to do that on uh, the 19th or the 20th. So if you subscribe and you want to send a question, you can send it any way you can. You can hit us on Twitter. You can send me an email. You can uh, put it in the uh, pa Patreon messenger system. I'll find it one way or another, uh, hopefully. And then we will read them off and we'll go through them. Mm. Anything else you want to add before we finish up? Well, I think that one theme which we might be exploring uh, through subsequent podcast episodes, and one theme which um, has popped up in this episode uh, and is linked to what we were discussing in the previous episode um, about um, theorists like David Hume writing about the kind of uh, legal system that you need to defend property rights, to defend commerce. And uh, I guess that one interpretation of what's going on in the early modern period through the 18th century is that you've got a lot of warring states in uh, Machiavelli's day. Um, and this leads to uh, the imagination of a split between morality and politics that Machiavelli sets up. And over time, you get this question, uh, not only about the relation between morality and politics, but about the relation between uh, politics and economics, because these warring states, in order to compete with one another, try to enrich themselves through trade. So trade begins uh, not as something which is dominating the states, but which states are using in order to increase their own power. And uh, in this way, um, reason of state can be seen as writers like um, uh, J.G.A. Pocock and Isvan Hunt argue um, as an application of um, reason of state to the economic sphere, an economic application of uh, Machiavellianism. Um, but what trade does is that um, trade leads uh, not just to the need for um, centralization, which war demands, but also for the need for rule of law. And that this sets up an opposition between, um, as Ernst Frankel argues, two forms of state. The prerogative state, which uh, Frankel suggests came first, he, he traces it to James the First's demand in. Um, in England for, uh, for divine right of kings and um, for an extreme degree of um, political unity in a sense. Um, but this uh, strong early modern um, Hobbesian Leviathan state, uh, this prerogative state, um, gave rise to a normative state with, with laws to manage um, the profits of commerce because uh, commerce evolved as something which was um, subservient to the state um, initially. But over time, commerce in turn uh, changed the state. In other words, the, the prerogative state of conquest gave rise to the normative state of 
commerce, but then commerce changed how the state um, itself was constituted. And uh, some of the effects of this um, include the ways in which the stories that the state tells um, change over time. And this leads, among other things, to uh, the notions of utility um, being central to the state, and uh, the, the notion that what matters is not creating some kind of civic dignity or abstract unity necessarily, but all that the state is there for, the utilitarians argue, is for maximizing um, pleasure, or as later uh, utilitarians influenced by economics argue, maximizing preference satisfaction. So n not only have we seen how the modern state creates uh, modern commerce, but also I think we're beginning to see, and we'll explore further, how modern commerce affects the modern state and the logics of uh, trade and war and the logics of modern politics and modern economics become increasingly entangled as modernity unfolds. Yes, yes. Because, I mean, one easy way to resolve the conflict between morality and economics is just to define what people economically want as what's good. Right, right. Uh, that's one very, very straightforward way to solve a problem, and that's kind of what the yeah. utilitarians do. And this leads yeah. into all this discussion of instrumental reason yeah. uh, by the Frankfurt School. And for that reason, after we do the utilitarians, we're going to come on to, uh, we're, we're going to revisit the Frankfurt School again, and we're going to do more of the later period Frankfurt School stuff yeah. that focuses principally on instrumental reason. Yeah. We're kind of going to do right. the origin story of instrumental reason, and then we're going to work our way back into frankfurt school responses to that yes but all of that lies ahead yes and we'll try not to give too much away at this time so thank you guys so much for listening and uh we hope to hear lots of questions for you for the q a episode we look forward to talking about utilitarianism uh, bye 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 <laughs>